Hello and welcome to Let's Talk Organ and Tissue Donation in partnership with Donate Life. I'm your host, Michael Billings, and my guest today is Brendan Cole. Brendan is a trailblazer. He's the first person in Australia to undergo an intestinal transplant. He's got one hell of a story. But before I get to that, I just want to remind you that I do this podcast in the hope that after listening, you'll do two things. Sign up to become an organ donor at donatelife.gov.au and talk to your family about your desire to be an organ donor. Both those things are just as important as each other and just one organ or tissue donor can transform the lives of many people. I'll remind you at the end of the episode, but for now, here's Brendan Cole. Brendan, thanks for joining us on the podcast. Where does the story start for you? story starts from birth, I guess. Uh, 43 years ago, I was born in Taralgon, Victoria, and I was born with a very rare bowel disease called Para-Hirschsprung's disease. Uh, also born with a blockage to both kidneys and an oversized bladder. Wow, that's a lot to be born with. What does someone living with these conditions deal with? Okay, so the Para-Hirschsprung's disease, uh, it affects the muscle linings of the bowel, the... Um, opening and closing movements of the bowel. So there was a lot of uh, blockages, poor mobility, distension as a child. I was with the blockages to both kidneys. The doctors noticed that I wasn't urinating properly, so they've gone in, put in stents to open up the kidneys. One came good, the other didn't. So for about 42-odd years, I've been living with one kidney. So at that point in your life, are they planning surgery? Are they planning on you living uh, with this condition on medication? What's the plan at this point? So <laughs> this is going back in 77, so it's sort of a Jekyll and Hyde thing. Let's open him up and have a play and see what we can do. So um, they resected the bowel a number of times and, uh, as I said before, removed one kidney. By the age of three, I'd sort of settled down. I'd had about 16-plus operations and they went, right, let's see how he goes. <laughs> so um, up until my teenage years, there weren't a lot of admissions. And then once I started growing a bit, I started getting more adhesions and more uh, complications with my bowel growing. So there'd be a lot of blockages, a lot of pain, a lot of distension in the bowel, uh, which would see me going in the hospital fair, quite a fair bit. Do you have anything resembling a normal life at this point? Are you doing normal teenage things or are you, for, for lack of a better term, a, a sick kid? Well, okay, so as a sick kid, the first three years, yes, very sick kid, from about five to 12, I guess, was pretty normal. And then as I hit my teens, there was a number of admissions and it just got regularly, more regular, more regular as I hit 16. Problem is, when I was getting these distensions, these blockages, they'd end up putting me on painkillers in hospital and I ended up getting addicted to narcotics. So what do your teenage years look like now that you don't only have these conditions to deal with, but also a painkiller addiction? Well... <laughs> Teenager, being a teenager is hard enough as it is, but you're throw on top of going in and out of hospital and then having a urologist say to you, we're going to look after your bladder by making you self-catheterise at home, which is painful enough. Then as I'm going through high school, 
same year old just comes up with a great idea. We get, we need you to catheterize yourself while you're at school. <laughs> so once in the morning, once during the day, and once in the afternoon. And trying to hide this as a teenager going through puberty, going through all other problems that I was dealing with. Yeah, it was a lot to deal with growing up and developing and having to do these sort of things. So how do you deal with that growing up? Obviously, as teenagers, we, we, we don't just want to blend in, but we don't want to be abnormal. How do you deal with that? No, you want to be normal. You want to be part of society. You want to fit in with your friends. And that was one thing that was really hard for me to do, is to make friends. Did that exacerbate the drug problem? What I found I was doing was ending up in hospital and having weeks at a time in hospital just to escape my life and having injections of narcotics just to escape, which the problem with narcotics, it doesn't work well with some intestinal problems. So the health problems you've already got are being made worse by your dependency. Yeah. The thing is, with when you say dependence, I could go three, five months with nothing. And then I either life would get too hard or I'd be in a lot of pain and I'd have one injection and then it led to a week of it until I went, right, I've got to get back to life, got to get back to normalcy get back into the real world. How long does this go on? Um, stint in the hospital would be one to two weeks at a time, uh, up until I was about 16, and they decided, let's remove my large bowel and loop my small bowel into what they call a J-pouch. This started to work, and things were going pretty good up until I was 19. Here I've hit adulthood, and I've started to go out with friends and drink alcohol, trying to fit in that normal life. And this one fateful night, I've had a, what I believe is spike drink. And with all my past problems, it's frozen my bowel and stomach completely. It's just stopped working. Uh, We've theorised that it's probably rapidly dehydrated me and... The bowel and the stomach has just stopped compl- working completely. So for the next three months, I'm in hospital and I'm vomiting uncontrollably. Uh, I've dropped down from a healthy 75 kilos to 48 kilos. Wow, that's making you a shadow of your former self. What do they do to uh, get you back to something resembling normal? Well, no one could work out what was going on. Here I was, I was six foot one, 48 kilos, uh, skin, uh, skin and bone. One of the one doctor saw me and he said, we need to get you up to Brisbane. They quickly rushed me up to Brisbane. I'm living on the Gold Coast at this time. They've rushed me up to Brisbane and they've got me there and had a look. We're going to open you up and have a look, see what's going on. They said the stomach had the feel of a plastic bag there was no fibrous muscle to the stomach at all so they removed a couple of blockages and adhesions and cleaned a few things up inside of me and um, put me on a solution an IV solution called TPN total parenteral nutrition 
this basically feeds me what my body needs over a 24-hour period. So I'd hook up for about 13 hours and then I'd have some time off. So at this point, you're getting 100% of your nutrients through an IV. Yeah, so basically anything I'd eat, I was throwing back up because my body wasn't being able to develop it and break it down and push it through my body. So food was just this foreign concept to me. It was a fond memory. How are you supposed to have anything resembling a normal life when you're spending 13 hours a day hooked up to a bag? Um, it's not easy. Think of birthday parties. This, and I think this was one of the hardest things is my family, we used to have birthday dinners. And this one birthday, birthday that I had, I remember we didn't do anything for it. And it just, it felt so unnatural. Because here I am, I can't eat. My family, they love me dearly, but we couldn't really celebrate a birthday. And for someone that's been told their whole life that you're not going to see past 12, you're not going to see past 16, you're not going to live past X, Y, and Z. Birthdays are really important because it's a landmark to me that says, I've proved you wrong. So when all that goes away, it's got to leave a big hole. At this point, you're on this TPN, but you want to do something normal. So you ask your doctor, what can we do so that I can just get some exercise? Yeah, so I had a drainage tube just so any bodily fluids that was building up inside me could drain off and I wasn't throwing up. So I thought I might get it back back into swimming and try and get some energy, get some fitness back into me. So they have this device called a plug. And it's apparently an easy, easy thing to do where you just switch the tube to a button that sits flush to the skin. So back up to Brisbane and to have this quick procedure done. And the guy that was doing it, I didn't quite trust him. <laughs> and I said, look, you're probably going to have a bit of trouble because of all my past surgeries. And he sort of cocking, cockily sort of overconfidently said that, um, no, no, easy, easy, won't be a problem. And I remember saying to him, you need to knock me out because I don't want to see your stuff up. Anyway, I've woken up later in the ward and I'm in immense pain. And for the next couple of days, my bowel and my stomach, my abdomen area was swelling. And I'm going from three three hourly pethidine shots and they would wear off in an hour, I was having hot baths, and this is going on every single day. So I'm either off my face on pethidine, or I'm laying in a hot bath, and this is every three hours, so there's no sleep. I've um, collapsed when the nurses were trying to get me onto the hospital bed, and they've rushed me off to theatre. They've opened me up and they've found that a big percentage of the remaining bowel that I had left was perforated. So just before my 21st birthday, they've removed whatever damaged bowel that there was, put a bag on me, a like a colostomy bag, still living off TPN, and happy birthday, happy 21st birthday. <laughs> so um, I said to the surgeon, look, can I just try some food? Can I just have a bit of pavlova, which is one of my favourite things to eat? And 
lo and behold, it's actually gone through into the bag, which no one ever thought would happen. And so from that, I've gone, let me try something else. Let me try another food that's gone through. Let me try another food that's gone through. And we thought, okay, let's stop them TPN and see if I can live off food. Failed miserably. We found that I was probably only absorbing maybe 5 to 10% of whatever I was eating. So I still needed to rely on the TPN to keep me alive. The little catch with the TPN, it also damages the liver. So what was keeping me alive was also killing me slowly. <laughs> and at this point, I'm, I've hit 22. And I've said to the specialist in Brisbane, okay, what is my next, what's out there for me now? What future do I have? And the guys, the doctors have just looked at me and said, well, you could have a bowel transplant. I said, great. Who doesn't? And they just sort of looked at him and said, well, only overseas. You'd have to go to America or Canada or somewhere else other than here to have a bowel transplant. So I've contacted every surgeon I could think of and it, I was told over and over again, we're probably 10 to 12 years off getting this done. You're better off going overseas. And for me, that just didn't feel right. Because here we are in Australia, we've got a great medical system, why aren't we doing this transplant? Yeah, at this point, uh, early 20s, trying to rebuild my life again, uh, spending time with friends, uh, trying to meet prospective mates. And it's really hard to be attractive to someone when you've got a bag, at night time you hook up to a drip, you don't have a job you have very little prospects in having a long life. Yep, that just paints winner. <laughs> well, I imagine that'd probably spur you on to be like, my only chance is to get this procedure that I can't get in Australia. Is this why you keep going, let's find another surgeon? They say no, let's find another one. It got to the point where I got told no so many times that I sort of, I didn't lose complete hope, but it was just put on the shelf. So at this point I get transferred to the Gold Coast Hospital. And I've met a nutrition by the name of Alan Spencer. And he sort of got me going with the idea of it might not be something we can give up on just yet. He was involved in doing a conference in Brisbane. And he said, I want you to be a guest speaker. I want you to come up to Brisbane, talk in front of these doctors, these other health professionals, and tell your story. Uh, lo and behold, there was another guest speaker at this same conference, and he is a world-renowned guru, I guess you could call him, in intestinal transplants, bowel transplants, which sort of spurred me on to go, oh, okay, well, I'm going to do this, I'm going to meet this guy, and let's see what he says. This same conference, I also meet another, spe uh, another doctor from Melbourne, from the Royal Children's, I believe, um, Julie Bynes, and... I know she's she tells me that she's keen on getting a bowel transplant done for some of her patients down there. So here I am meeting all these people that are really positive. Let's get this done. Let's get this done. And I started dating this wonderful woman and her family's in Victoria. So we've flown down to meet her parents and I get this call from Julie Bynes and she's got a a surgeon in 
in Melbourne that is really keen to meet me. So we've quickly raced down to Melbourne and here I am sitting in a room with Professor Bob Jones from the Austin Hospital and he's telling me how he's keen to do a bowel transplant and we're going through my medical history and I've never asked him but I can imagine that he must have shook his head when I said to him, if you can do this, I'll make it a success. <laughs> How were you so confident that you could say something like that to a doctor that's never done this procedure with a procedure that's never been done in this country? Where does that confidence come from? Uh, the confidence comes from not having any other options. It was all my eggs in one basket. It was, I've been through so many things in my life that I believe that whatever was going to happen, I can get through it. I was going to make everything, anything that I could happen, I'd do anything to make sure this was a success. So now you've got a doctor lined up. So now I imagine it's just sitting and waiting for an organ to become available. Well, there was a few hoops to jump through. We've had to get funding to get the transplant done. We've had to get other departments from the Austin on side, which eventually happened. And then with the workup, so every bit of my body prodded and probed, as you could imagine. And then, yeah, the weight. So we've moved down to Victoria from the Gold Coast, and we've relocated our whole life. Kiralee's changed jobs. This is the woman that I was dating. Yeah, we've said goodbye to my support structure on the Gold Coast, all my friends, all my family. And luckily we've had Kiralee's family in Melbourne and Victoria. Without them, we couldn't have got through anything. Then one fateful day in 2010, we get a phone call. And the first time I've answered the phone call, I didn't actually think it was real. I thought I was getting pranked. And when someone said, Mr. Cole, we need you to come to the hospital. We might have some organs for you. We've dropped everything and raced to the hospital. That was at about six in the morning. We didn't go into surgery till about 12.30. And 10 minutes before we were going into surgery, they said, right, Mr. Cole, you need to contact your family to say goodbye, just in case things don't work out. So I'm one of five and the youngest, and I've had to ring all my, my both my eldest brothers, older sisters, and that's one of the hardest things to do is to actually say goodbye I love you I may never see you again we um I was positive that I was going to but just in case it was how do you condense 30 odd years into five minute phone calls but yeah that was one of the hardest things I've ever had to do I can't imagine having to make those phone calls from there, you go into surgery. Tell me about the feeling of waking up. Well, I've woken up in ICU and this nurse is standing near me and I've said, what, what's gone wrong? What's happened? And she's gone, Mr. Cole, relax, relax. It's all, everything okay, everything's fine. No, 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 no. What went wrong? I felt like they've gotten in and organs weren't right or something went wrong. They've sewn me back up and I've woken up in ICU with nothing happening. I felt too good. I felt like I should have been hit by like a Mack truck, but I felt fantastic. I felt like I could have got up and walked around the block. 
the amount of times she actually said to me, no, Mr. Cole, it went well, everything's fine, you need to relax. And it wasn't until a doctor came in and showed me his phone with photos of the surgery being done <laughs> to actually prove to me that I'd had a transplant, something that I'd fought for for so long. And it was such a pipe dream. Here we've become the first person in Australia to have this trans kind of transplant done in Australia. And I felt fantastic. Mind you, I was on quite a lot of painkillers and, and whatnot to keep me going, but I felt amazing for the first time. I think it's really important to stress that point, that this procedure had not been done in Australia before. You were going in just hoping for the best, essentially, and putting all your faith into the skills of the surgeons that, again, have never done this procedure. It's really quite phenomenal. <laughs> Look, the team at the Austin Hospital, they're amazing. I put I'd, If they said... Brendan, we need to cut your head off and then reattach it. Sure, okay, go for it. <laughs> I trust them. I did go in with a bit of blind faith, but I knew and trusted these surgeons would do a great job. Now, I know there's recovery that comes after that, but compare your life today to your life 20 years ago. Okay, so 20 years ago, uh, no job, living off a machine every night. Couldn't drive, didn't have my licence basically on doors, on death's doorstep. Fast forward to today, I'm now working full-time. I started nine or ten years ago driving as a subcontractor for Australia Post, so I had to quickly get my licence. Drove around the countryside delivering to farms and different areas. Then about a year ago, I decided I'll go get my motorbike licence. <laughs> and... Um, now I'm a, motor, a postie on a motorbike, working full-time. If you had told me that I was, that's what I was doing 20 years ago, I would have shook my head and said, you're kidding. I'm now married to the woman that I was dating way back then, and we now have a six-year-old son. That is a really remarkable story, and I'm so glad your life is where it is today. It really makes me happy. But this is only possible because of an organ donor. What would you say to the family that made that transplant possible? Thank you is one of those phrases that just seems not enough in this case. This family has done something that has given me a chance to have a future and not only have a future for myself but impact other people's lives and raise a son and be somewhat normal. In their darkest times when they've just lost someone They've made this brave, heroic decision to donate their loved one's organs. Look, to have the foresight to think of someone else when one donor can help so many people, you can't thank them enough. They are heroes. I think you're spot on there, mate. The last question I'm going to ask you is the question I ask everyone who comes on the podcast. What would you say to someone who is thinking about or unsure about signing up to be an organ donor? What I'd say to those that are thinking about becoming organ donors is you're giving someone a chance, a future, and that's all we ask for. We just want to be a normal part of society to fit in like everyone else and to have a chance. And that's what it all comes down to. I didn't choose to have a, this illness. 
I tried to do the best with my life. Thankfully, someone's come to my rescue and been an organ donor. Brendan, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and sharing your amazing story. I, I just hope that my story inspires other people to do good out there. What an amazing story, and only made possible because of one selfless organ donor and their family. I hope after hearing this story, you might go to donatelife.gov.au and sign up to become an organ donor, and also talk to your family about your wishes. If you enjoyed the podcast, then give it a review or a rating, maybe even share it on your social media. I hope it swayed you to sign up to become an organ donor. Hope you'll make the decision to donate life.